What's up, everyone? Uh, this What's is up? Tavit. This is Yusef. And this is the Video Game Hour. Uh, we're, Our third episode. Yeah, third episode, man. Feels like we're starting to yeah. get the wind under our wings, as it were. <laughs> um, Definitely. Later in this episode, we'll be discussing 80 Days for the iOS. Um, but before we get into all that craziness, Yusef, what you been playing, man? So I've been playing Ori in the Blind Forest, which is a Metroidvania game, meaning it takes elements from Castlevania and Metroid and games of that ilk where you have 2D platforming mixed with exploration. You start with a basic set of skills and you kind of get more things that allow you to then explore more because parts of the map will be closed off if you don't have the means to reach it. And I, I am liking it a lot right now. I'm nice. still about, I don't know, maybe halfway through it. Very reminiscent of a lot of first-party games from Xbox Live, like Outland, Dust and Legion Tales, Shadow Complex, Insanely Twisted Shadow Planet, Shadow, Shadow, Shadow. Yeah, wow, it seems like there's like a lot of those like Metroidvania-style <laughs> There style are a ton, if you look it up. Yeah. I wonder what that is, if it's like an economy of game design, like because you are designing fewer environments that the player has to sort of recycle over and over again, or if it's something that's just sort of beholden to that value like that economical value of like what the sort of average purchase price of an xbox live game or like a downloadable game might be so like, i just wonder like why the that genre mm-hmm. of gameplay is so popular because you're right there's like tons of them yeah i think it's a mix of the economic and the nostalgia factor mm-hmm. for these developers they're all around our age they've all played metroid metroid castlevania those yeah. games like they and those are some of the finest games oh yeah that have ever totally. been made i love i love the metroidvania series of games it's a sure. simple like, concept and a simple ex- execution depiction that is very deep because you can because it has the exploration factor yeah and it's a way to actually physically in the game world represent your progress because the yeah. more you play it the more you see the more you have conquered the world yeah. it's a kind of you're kind of colonizing this giant square world that yeah. in the beginning you're only seeing a tiny segment of and by the end you know where everything is you know where all the secrets are mm-hmm. you play it enough you feel like you kind of own it and it kind of draws into that wanderlust area of your brain where you really want to conquer everything and like totally. see everything I didn't play most of these games to completion but Shadow Complex I played nearly to completion because it was just so fun to kind of explore every nook and cranny of that world. I heard really good things about Shadow Complex. Yeah, I really should check it out. Fun. Yeah, it was. I don't know. I don't know if I, I don't know if I would still like it now. Mm-hmm. You know, even it was almost like a certain time and a place sure. where there were not really that many games like that. There weren't that many modern takes on Metroidvanias. Right at the time, it yeah. wasn't oversaturated. It was one of the first few, and yeah. it was kind of also having a three D. 3D execution modeling of a 2D world. Mm-hmm. So you were running through a world that looked three-dimensional. Yeah. And then you can... But you would shoot in a two-dimensional plane. Oh, that's so awesome. It was yeah, kind of a totally. cool simplification. Like 2.5D. Kind yeah, of. exactly. Yeah. So everything it was doing was very cool and innovative and no longer is the case. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it, it was definitely innovative at the time. Nice. And Ori definitely suffers from having come after a lot of these games. I feel if it had come around the same time as Shadow Complex, I would have been a lot more impressed with it. Sure. I'm still very impressed with it visually. I think it looks outstanding. And I think that's probably what they were prioritizing in terms of presentation. The because, game certainly looks yeah, they, beautiful. They were like, let's make a really beautiful game that is made in Unity. And it's, it's, I think and doesn't look 3D at all. It looks like a painting. Wow. So nice. it's just beautifully done, and it, it's a beautiful exterior that rests on a very traditional skeleton. In that way, I was a little bit disappointed because I wanted something that kind of pushed those boundaries a bit. Yeah. And it didn't really. 
Okay. It also actually reminds me a little bit of um, that Luchador game. Oh, that just came out. Guacamele. Yeah, Guacamele. Yeah, Guacamele. Sure. Yeah. That's another Metroidvania. Another game, Metroidvania for sure. And Absolutely. the art style is gorgeous as well. Yeah. Um, I watched a friend recently show me one of the more. I, I haven't played Guacamele yet. I own a copy of it, but I really haven't gotten around to it. He showed me like a, a section of the game that was much further along. And mm-hmm. what I think is so interesting about Guacamele, from what I've gathered thus far, is that you're basically slipping your character between different um, states of life and death, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. When you flip between those states, like spirit realm, corporeal realm, the entire art style of the game and the environments change along with it. And it was just this really, at first it was incredibly, it was just very difficult to grasp because the entire environment would flip over in color palette, in um, iconography, in all of the different uh, assets that were populating both like non-player character and a player character. But then as I kind of caught up with the pace at which he was switching between these states to complete the area puzzles... It actually became really compelling visually mm-hmm. um, to switch between the sort of like bright palettes of color for the living world and these like more somber and blue tones for the the yeah. dead world, which was just cool. And the way it perform, the way that it moves, it actually it was very um, the timing is perfect for that switching. Like your jumps are so long that when you oh, switch cool. the world, you know you see like the the world change and you have enough yeah. time for your brain to like recognize that. Oh, cool, nice. So yeah, you'll be like doing things like mid jump. Yes, yeah, exactly. That's really cool. So that's a that's fun. Cool. That's a fun tempo yeah. to set. That painterly style that I saw in Ori and the Blind Forest reminded me a lot of this other game that came out, uh, Child of Light. Mm-hmm. I wonder, like, other than Child of Light, other than Ori and the Blind Forest, seems like there's that, since Okami came out, that movement towards, like, painterly style games. It's it's interesting, too, because, like, Nintendo's playing a little bit with, like, other mediums mm-hmm. uh, within the game, like Epic Yarn mm-hmm. or Yoshi's Woolly World. It's, 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 it's just an interesting and cool thing to see, like, physical texture coming into games. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. Which for so long were either like going for ultra realism or like nostalgia based pixel graphic. The other thing I wanted to say about it, I had an issue with the design curve of the game because it follows a traditional design curve where you start off with very few abilities mm-hmm. and then ramps up to obviously unlocking more and more abilities, seeing more parts of the world. And my problem was just the beginning part was very unfun. It was mm. very mediocre in terms of interaction, like the first two hours, I'd say, because there's not that much challenge, mm-hmm. and but there's also not that much interaction and use of your abilities. You basically have jump, and you shoot a little light ball at enemies to kill them. And later on, you can double jump, you can fling yourself around the world, you can ground stomp, you can, nice. you can charge in certain directions, and... There's so many more ways to interact with the world that kind of um, make your character, that use that aspect of your character and embody them and make them make more sense as a character. Because the character is basically this energy source, this good in the forest that is also very free and is a spirit. Sure. At the beginning, you're it represents you more as a child. And that makes sense in a narrative, but then in the actual interactivity, you're just... Just not that much fun. It's just not fun at all. Yeah. And it was really hard to keep going. I had to kind of force myself through that part to mm-hmm. then get to where it actually became a very interesting game and a lot more challenging too. Like later in the game, it becomes a lot more like where Guacamelee also enters that territory where they're just really tough platforming puzzles. Sure. Where you're jumping multiple times while hitting the ground. Mm-hmm. You're trying to like avoid spikes so you you can't jump super high. You have to jump at a certain level. It's very precise, almost Super Meat Boy area. Yeah, of yeah totally. Getting through a an area without dying. So it actually gets very challenging, more challenging than I thought it would be. Like it's more about the visual experience. Right. It ends up being a very difficult game. It's interesting too because when you bring up how tried and true the, the game design of this of Ori and the Blind Forest is as a Metroidvania game it, and then you also rightly so complain that the, the first two hours might be a little bit on the boring side. It reminds me that so many 
contemporary Metroidvania games I've played start with the kind of overpowered cold opening where like you meet the character or you the character that you're inhabiting is already kind of fully powered or two-thirds of the way powered and you get to kind of tutorialize the mechanics of the game and like the breadth of mechanics that you might be seeing, the power that you might be controlling later on hours into the experience as you're also kind of introing the story elements of the game. Whereas in Ori, it sounds like you're very much starting at the very bottom of the hill and working your way consistently up. I wonder, you know, in something that is, a, you know, a, a video game where it's not just mechanics, where it's not just storytelling or visual or sound design, but a, a marriage of all of these things I wonder like in general could we like apply uh, a thematic or a critical rule of the genre that it, like almost benefits more from starting on a denouement versus starting at the bottom and working its way up starting with power might be a cooler you know opening in most cases unless it's completely deserved by the plot or the setting or the whatever to start at the very bottom so I don't know having not played Ori in the Blind Forest like I don't know if the game lends itself well to starting at the bottom, yeah. or if it would actually have benefited from what other games in that Metroidvania genre do, which is like give you power, systematically take it away from you, and allow you to build back up to it. All within the first half yeah. hour, all within the first hour of play. Yeah, I don't necessarily see an issue with starting from the bottom, especially as it fits narratively. You are you literally are starting as you're lost. You don't really know what you are. Mm-hmm. Cool. And you okay. kind of f- find that power. I think the only issue is that you start from the bottom and it's not interesting. You can be in a weak character and still have an interesting interaction. Absolutely. There's so many games that do this Absolutely. very well. I mean, I'm playing... Republic is another iPad game that mm-hmm. like you are completely powerless. In fact, you're not even really inhabiting the character. You're inhabiting their guide mm-hmm. and there's no power to combat the environment. Sorry, you are going to say. Oh, no. I mean, that's a great example. It's, it really is just like not having the... or putting you in the same situations as you'll eventually later be, which is endemic to a, to a Metroidvania sure. because you are going back... You're you're, a lot, you're back-facing your steps a lot of the time in mm-hmm. Metroidvania is here. But the interactions in the beginning are just, are hindered by that. And and purposefully. But yeah. maybe you just, maybe it's just a limit, like, how much you have to deal with that. Because yeah. in the beginning, like, you you have the one attack, and it's kind of involves you sitting in the corner, like, hitting attack a bunch of times until the enemy dies. Exactly. This is re- really, really unelegant compared to what happens later on. Yeah, so maybe it's just, like, a pacing problem. Could be a pacing problem. It's I actually, mean, yeah. It's kind of interesting because the whole idea of like the cold open or the powerful open versus the disempowered uh, open. I know you're playing a couple of games right now, so maybe if if you don't mind, I'll skip over to yeah, the game I'm so. playing because it actually reminds me a lot of. I'm in the first two or three hours of Xenoblade Chronicles, which is uh, it was just ported down to the new 3DS from the Wii originally, and it was like long heralded as like this incredible JRPG. And even in the first three hours, I'm noticing a lot of the sort of the mechanics that we're talking about. Now, it's a JRPG, but it's it's different in a lot of the JRPGs that I've played. JRPGs, unlike Western RPGs, Japanese RPGs, unlike Western RPGs, tend to be a lot more linear and has the player inhabiting a well-defined character that has their own moral compass and uh, path in, in quest and life. And, and you kind of just inhabit this character and push that character forward in the story, right? JRPG. But what's interesting about Xenoblade Chronicles, it's certainly, it's it's introing like a JRPG would. I'm, I'm on a very well-defined path. I know where my next story quest is. But what's already happening is it's actually weirdly enough reminding me of certain elements of American or Western RPGs where there's just tons of side quests already opening up around me, um, which I'm free to explore at any, at any pace I want to. And the world is wide open. There, are, I have not encountered yet an invisible wall. Now, I haven't really tried walking outside of the starting area, but the areas are gigantic. 
and I'm traversing them on foot, and I don't even know how long it would take me to uh, get out of the Sector 9 or Section 9, wherever the game starts, the fictional colony where the game begins. But it's a really interesting way of kind of uh, changing up the restrictions that another Metroidvania-style game would, would do. Metroidvania... Metroidvania present... <laughs> Metroidvania... <laughs> 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 uh, That's totally fine. Um, Metroidvania games, like you were saying, take you into an environment and show you a later goal that you may eventually get to, but also shows you the three or four barricades in your way that will eventually later become, you know, environmental clues that you can overcome using a specific tool or power or whatever. In this game, it just seems like distance is the is the uh, only restriction, and my imagination, shall we say, or my ability to read the map. So it's an interesting game, Xenoblade Chronicles. I started powerful. Uh, the tutorial section gave me control of not the main character that I am now inhabiting, now that the tutorial section's over, but this, like, powerful warrior who's, like, stalwart and brave and runs into combat so as like the meta fiction is being introduced i'm playing this like mad powerful dude runs around slashing robots to pieces it's awesome and then something happens and i'm no longer that character and i'm the main character who's like just nowhere near as powerful and now i've got like my little party coming together the game's still tutorializing so in all it's just interesting because it's it's got a lot of the same progression blocking concepts but it's going about blocking them in totally different ways it's only three i'm only three hours in so i don't know how it'll go it really looks impressively large like i'm really glad that i waited to get it on the new 3ds versus buying it on the wii because like my save files are much longer on my portable games than they are on my home console games and it may just be the changing nature of the way that i'm approaching games or my time to play games because you're kind of using them more in the your off hours you don't have on hours for games well yeah it's tough because like yeah it's it's really weird you know there's certain games like uh when i came over you were playing bloodborne and i've played some of the souls games and like bloodborne and the souls games like it requires at least two or three unbroken hours to like make forward progress Mm -hmm. in those games versus what i i've been experiencing with portable games which is like they can actually be you can you can get progress going in much smaller chunks like 20 to 30 minutes and i've actually made significant process or progress in the critical path of the game towards the end of the game and i can certainly backtrack grind do whatever i want to in my free minutes but i'm talking about like an hour versus hours of uninterrupted time and that's that's neither here nor there i think there are certainly exceptions to the rules like games that i will absolutely sit down and kiss my real life goodbye and play for hours and hours and hours upon end no matter what platform platform they're on but i'm glad you know xenoblade came out for the new nintendo 3ds because i think for me and my type of gameplay it'll be easier for me to like take it on my 30 40 minute commute each day and really plug that time in and put that time into it Mm -hmm. versus when i'm at home and i've got other concerns (laughs) um, that are more of a well-rounded adult shall we say (laughs) yeah definitely yeah um and you were still playing monster hunter yeah i actually took a break as my Save file is now around 80 hours, nice. which is really nice. intense to even say out loud. I think the last time we spoke, I was just starting the game, yeah. and I'm in love with it. I, it's met, it's exceeded all of my expectations, actually. Uh, at first, I had a, or at first, about 20, 30 hours in, I had a deep concern that the game might be a little too easy, or mm-hmm. that I had gained too much skill in the previous Monster Hunter game to like really devote the hours to it. But then I, around the 50 to 60 hour mark, I punched into a level of difficulty that is 
is beyond what I had reached in the last entry in the series at 160 hours or 170 hours mm -hmm. logged on my save file. So I know this game is going to provide the content that I'm looking for from mm -hmm. that series, and I haven't even reached the G rank quests, which are like the nasty, nasty quests. For I'm the like real on like G's. yeah, the, for the real G's, <laughs> for the big G's. I'm like Monster Hunter level nine or something, which it's like hard and i'm definitely getting my ass handed to me but it's no g rank and sure. i'm not even there yet and it's yeah. only been like 80 hours and the crazy part is i'm primarily still using only the insect glaive which is like the new weapon one of the new weapon classes in the game but i could theoretically start all the way back from rank one on the same save file with any of the 14 different weapons and the game will play completely differently in theory providing me with another 200 hours worth of content like it's crazy it's just crazy how large it is 80 hours in took a break i'm gonna do the xenoblade thing for as long as i can i tend not to fare too well with jrpgs but i'm gonna give it my best i've heard really good things the battle system is really cool it's very much more active it's like a very active action-oriented mmo battle system where there's like auto attacks so like you run up in a three-dimensional space to the enemy and you select to attack and your your guy and your whole party's your party will start swinging their melee weapons at the enemy but then you have like a menu, very much looks like a hotkey menu for an MMO of your like special attacks. And there's no like MP or magic points. It's just a cooldown timer hmm. for those moves to be available to use again. So it's really cool. Like position matters. Like if you're behind or to the side of your enemy matters, party like management matters. And it just seems like a lot of fun. Yeah, that's great. And so what else are you playing, man? Speaking of Nintendo, oh. I'm also playing The Legend of Zelda Wind Waker. Yes. <laughs> yes. I know y'all can't hear this right now, but I'm pumping my fists in the air. I'm pumping my... Wind Waker is the greatest game ever. It is a fantastic game. Yeah. And it, what's great about it for me is I haven't played a Legend of Zelda game since the first one for NES. Because Whoa. I never really owned a Nintendo system after the NES. Oh, man. Yeah, this, this is the Wii U is the first time that I've owned a um, owned a Nintendo system. And so I'm playing the HD version. Oh, you're... That's amazing, dude. Yeah. I wish I could be you right now <laughs> to experience it all over again for the it's first time. It's great. It really confuses my brain because so many games have copied it. I know. In terms of like everything that it kind of brings to the table. Assassin's Creed Black Flag is mm -hmm. basically this game with Assassin's Creed tacked onto it. Absolutely, yeah. You know, the ability to sail around the world and every island has a different thing going on. Yeah. And it, it's a truly an open world game. Absolutely. It's so huge. It's so huge. And I, Maybe too big. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it may be. And there are going to be times where you're going to think it's a little bit too big. But I think the HD version for the Wii U added a bunch of tools to make the traversing of the world a bit easier. Mm. And if I can if I can beg of you one thing as a Wind Waker mega fan, it's that the time it takes on the seas is weirdly enough like part of it. I very fondly remember when I first played the game on the GameCube. Because I replayed it on the... Uh, Wii U as mm, well mm. but I very fondly remember even on the GameCube the like stretches of like 10 to 15 minutes at a time where I would just choose a bearing with my ship and just sail just go and just sail yeah. it's amazing that's a great part of it it reminds me also of games like Skyrim where you can always fast travel or any of the Elder Scrolls games but part of the, at some point you kind of embrace the nature of of going very slowly through the world and seeing what distractions would hit you along yeah, the way. Yeah. And there are a lot of distractions in Wind Waker. Like, you'll be going to... A, there are islands instead of dungeons. Yeah, exactly. Just, yeah, and the islands kind of have their own little ecosystems, their own little cultures, and 
mini stories that are happening with them. But then there are much smaller islands that have smaller interactions, but are very that have their own kind of thing going on. So you'll be sailing in the direction of a of a bigger island, and then you'll just see a fort with a bunch of ships circling around it with cannons, and you're like, "What's going on there?" And I'm just gonna get closer. Oh, they're shooting at me, and then I'm gonna engage, and like then you kind of get the, you spent like an hour <laughs> kind of storming this fort that has nothing to do with the main game, and it's a great way to. I think it's just the best way to do a side quest in a game rather than give you have a quest giver mm -hmm. to ask you to bring him five shoes for his cobble shop. You go do it and then you come back and you continue your story. It, it, this, yeah, this is actually, it's more of a natural reaction because you're just yeah. like, hmm, what's that? I get the story, but I also have, this thing looks interesting. You know, I have time. I have time. Yeah. I, could, I could check this out. And there's one word that you said just a few minute ago that I really actually also felt during my playthroughs of Wind Waker, which was culture. Mm -hmm. For some reason, somehow, the art direction um, and the design direction of that game uh, really led me to feel as though each island had its own culture. Mm -hmm. And especially at that, I don't know how far along you are, but... I'm fairly, I'm like, I don't know, I'm probably pretty far. At the point where you basically meet and then resolve the conflicts of the Deku people and the Deku mm -hmm. tree yeah. and the little leaves they're as cheesy as it is that song and dance routine it's that they so do good. is so good <laughs> and so unique mm -hmm. that it felt and this is going to sound really weird it felt like a scene from Kurosawa's The Hidden Fortress mm -hmm. where the travelers like look over the ridge at this big ceremony that's happening where like this whole village is like doing a big dance and like fire dancing and like running around as an entire village and it had that same masterful feeling of like even though it's complete fiction of creating and capturing a culture and then going around with the pirates that you're you know swimming along or sailing alongside like they have their own culture and their own language and their own weird idioms and then every single society that you meet the eaglet people or whatever mm -hmm. and the girl or the guy I can't remember the guy who like can't fly as well and mm -hmm. every single culture presented its struggles in its own language and I felt like that was such an incredibly unique thing even within a game universe as diverse and as well realized as like The Legend of Zelda I, it used to be that I would say that my favorite Legend of Zelda game was uh, Link to the Past the Super Nintendo one and it's still incredible but playing Wind Waker HD just a couple of year, year and a half ago when it came out, I was completely blown away. I, yeah. I'd never, and I love the Legend of Zelda series, but sure. that might be my favorite game. Uh, yeah, I, I don't have a, an exact frame of reference for kind of the other way the other games. I've heard that similar, where they kind of have, you'll go to a village that has its own thing going on. Mm -hmm. Whether it's culture or whether it's something else, it's really just the storytelling. You know, they, they, have, they have each island has a problem yeah you go there and you solve it it's unique to the island it's unique to their backstory it's not just kind of a it's not a generic blanket problem it's always specific to that group of people that are yep. there the eaglets they have their god they're worshiping they have this whole religion mm -hmm. that exists only in the island exactly like and the tree has is, is its own god and that what's cool too is like line of setup when you yeah. get there like you just find it through exploring mm -hmm. and that's a great um, one of the best aspects of the game. Totally. You know what other game uh, has you visiting different places mm. and <laughs> getting bits of their story and oh, culture? Game I think that? there might be another game. In fact, I think it might even be our highlight game of the week or of the podcast or of the... I totally fucked up that intro. <laughs> <laughs> that maybe so. Yeah, it might be the, might be the, the game of the episode. It tells its narrative through exploration. Oh my gosh, wait, could it be? <laughs> Have we arrived at 80 days? I think cool game studios. of the hour. Game of the, uh, the, game of the hour yes that's it 
Our game of the hour is 80 Days. That's a Scottish accent. No, no, let's not do the Scottish accent. Um, 80 Days by Inkle Studios, which I think is a Cambridge-based developer yeah. uh, in the UK, written by Meg Jayanth. And it's for the iOS, and it is a, a kind of like a visual novel mixed with the capitalist kind of buy-sell trading of the old TI-83 game Drug Wars, if you remember that. <laughs> um, and it's an adaptation of the great work by Jules Verne. So the game involves you, or following the, the path of the original book, which essentially followed two gentlemen, well, a gentleman and his valet, mm-hmm. as, they, as he, made a, he made a bet to travel the world in 80 days with his other cohorts. Phineas Fogg. And- Phileas. Phileas. Yeah, Phileas Fogg. Phileas, Phileas Fogg. Sorry, that was the cartoon. Phineas and Phoebe. Yeah, Phileas Fogg. Too has, many alliterations. Has made a bet with a few other noblemen yeah. or like, you know, yeah. aristocrats basically. Exactly. In London. He's in, a, he's in some London society club. He makes yeah. a bet that he, can, he can't do it. In the book, they don't really explain in the game because they don't really need to, but in the book it's explained as this is the first point where that journey can be made generally only by train and, mm-hmm. and boat. And so they're looking at the timetables and they're like, wow, look at that. They can, this timetable calculated that they could do it in 80 days. And like the other guys are like, oh, that's impossible. That, that's only because it's on... Yeah, it's not real, practical. It's not practical. It's not facing the real world. Phileas Fogg, for some unknown reason, it wants to take the bet and does it, brings his valet along and, and sets off. Ah, Passepartout. Passepartout, the yes, French ballet. The French ballet. His first day on the job. <laughs> and it's weird, because like, from a literary perspective, it reminded me a lot of uh, the, the book, not the mm-hmm. game. Uh, obviously had like some callbacks to um, Don Quixote. Kind of noble, or of, 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 of noble and rich birth main hero who is kind of being spirited through these misadventures by their valiant valet who is at times much more capable than the master the person in charge but at other times you know it's it's this interesting kind of like in the same way that don quixote is helped along his travel the bumbling hero oh that's interesting that's a good i was getting into it and the game is composed of basically planning your trip and finding a way to get around the world unlike the book there are any number of places you can go to so the game 140 plus locations right something like that it it creates a very populated world and a lot of opportunities and branching locations to then circumnavigate the world you stop in a city you get to plan your next leg of the journey you have to try and buy and sell items which can then be you say you buy something cheap like drug wars you buy something cheap in one city and it'll tell you whether it's valuable in another city so you kind of pack it along on the bet that you will then hopefully get to that next city and be able to make bank off of this one item exactly or you can just do it more minutely by just buying a lot of stuff and selling it constantly and kind of keeping that rotation going. Yep. Alternatively, you can hit the bank and try and, and just take a loan out, which costs you time, which is the main enemy of the game. Yeah, time is your kind of restriction or the... It's the, the villain. The villain. Uh, <laughs> there are micro-villains that yeah. will also eat up more of your time. Um, but as but you then it's, saying, always the, it's always the risk. Uh, the, the penalty is always losing time. Exactly. You know, you, you can die, but you can't really... There's not too many, like, overtly dangerous things. Ultimately, it's... Like help or hinder your help or hinder yeah. your your journey along uh, around the world. Yeah, I felt like the main game mechanic actually, weirdly enough, was capitalism. Mm-hmm. Like it it manifested in a lot of different ways. Um, so you, like you're saying, you get to a location. Let's say we start in London, but we our next train stop is Paris, or we take a, a flight or a boat or something to the next. So we stop in Paris, and within each city or within each location, you're allowed to go to the bank, as you said, go to the marketplace to trade. You can kind of wander around. And wandering around will kind of open up these dialogue, branching dialogue and story paths where the user can then 
choose your own adventure style, decide how Passport 2, you're always inhabiting Passport 2, is reacting to the experience. And from his reactions and from the reader's reactions, from the player's reactions, it pushes that possibility or branch of storytelling forward. So this can lead to opening up new routes uh, that connect cities based on different transportation, unlike the original book, but very much indebted to the perception of the original book. There's a lot of steampunk elements uh, in the game. So there's like automatons and airships and weird stuff that did not actually exist in the world that the book inhabited but definitely existed in the beginnings of the imaginations of Jules Verne. Jules Verne at different times has been credited with kind of pre-inventing or being the precursor to steampunk. So there's a bit of that sci-fi element as well, which I think is really interesting because it obviously allows for more transportation options, but also allows for deeper adaptive story elements versus just kind of cleanly one-to-one -one bringing 80 days or around the world in 80 days into this playable experience. I think what the game does really well is actually explore the world and the potential fractals of intentions that Jules Verne had created. Not only in 80 Days, but there's references to Journey of the Center of the Earth. There's uh, references to going to the moon, like whenever you mm -hmm. beat the game. So mm -hmm. I think what it does is it's actually kind of a game more about Jules Verne in a way mm -hmm. than cleanly only about Around the World in 80 Days. Yeah, it's a game that's aware of Jules Verne's impact on, on literature. Yeah, absolutely. So it's like kind of like they recognize that this is a game that's happening now. Jules Verne wrote the book at the height of British colonialism. It was this period when the world was kind of, was the oyster of Britain. It was the mm -hmm. place where they can grab whatever they wanted out of these other territories and cultures, cultures and nations. Yeah, exactly. And that's how the book was framed. They were two adventurers who were going into the murky depths of the non-Western world, full of savagery and danger, but also excitement and wonder, which is always an element of Jules Verne's work. Absolutely. Whether he goes to the bottom of the sea or the moon, it was always about going, yeah, kind of exploring past his own boundaries, which were decidedly Western, decidedly uh, imperialistic, colonial being situated in Europe during this time. Mm -hmm. So the book absolutely occupied the same space as the bottom of the ocean. As yeah, space. totally. It could be just as far. Yeah, basically. it was basically just as far into that. <laughs> I mean, it, you need only recognize that basically no foreign characters were named. Yeah. I mean, they were in the book itself. The yeah. Parsi Guide, the mm -hmm. Hong Kong Circus Act. Like, the, the, these people were unnamed caricatures of what an actual person of this culture would be. So it's a handful to then take this work and translate it to something that exists now. I mean, I'm sure previous attempts have stayed too, true to the work in a kind of, as the excuse obviously being accuracy, yeah, accuracy exactly. and authenticity to yeah. the history. And loyalty to the text. Loyalty, the to, yeah. loyalty to the text. And I think why the narrative of the game works so well is because the loyalty shown is to the themes of the text rather than the rather than the perspective of the text. Sure, yeah. It's so, not uh, like a strictly colonialist. The, the, the natives or the people that occupy the rest of the world are named. They, and they have, have personalities. And they personality. have characters. They challenge the the player in yep. any number of ways. And you were just talking about the technology. Mm -hmm in the game that the technology is spread evenly throughout the world. Everybody has access to these machines. Yep. Um, and they kind of ahistorical perspective of technology because normally technology was used by the Western powers to right. then dominate the rest of the world. So the rest of the world in this case has the same power and is treated on a, on a similar level of respect and, and privilege to the, to the European nations, at least technologically. I mean, there's a part in the game where you are in Bogota, Colombia, and mm -hmm. you see an autumn 
Automata statue and you're kind of wowed by it and the townswoman is just like what it's just it's just you don't have Automata where you're from <laughs> and it's <laughs> silly cool, London like is it a, yeah like the guy's from supposedly the seat of power of the world but right. the language of the game challenges that power in sure. a certain way so it's almost like at the cost of being very loyalist to the tone of the text or the the source material what we get this softer and more egalitarian edge to the storytelling because essentially what we're doing is we're reading right the real core game mechanic is capitalism yeah what i kept routes are are, yeah the routes are buying exactly you're buying passage on a certain type of vehicle so i wonder first you bring up this really interesting thing about the egalitarianism of this of this reading of 80 days and it was cool like i totally dug it some of my favorite moments of the game and the fiction that i was inhabiting i don't think would have been possible in jules verne's telling of his own story like Mm -hmm. ultra colonial very western you know orientalist view of the world they are all savages and they have this totally different way of life like there are just so many different occurrences that were so great and rich because they were egalitarian and more democratic but at the same time it also made me think that perhaps this game occupies in a sense a whitewashed narrative and not whitewashed in terms of white hegemonic power mm-hmm. but in like a united colors of benetton washing mm-hmm. of of history because we know as students of history that this was in fact like jules verne's writing and tonality reflected a pretty big tonality of the world at the time that saw eastern powers and non just basically non-western powers as like very dangerous and completely unknowable and this was due to modes of transportation and communication at the time wars perceptions of closed borders versus open borders the way the way the world was at the time right sure and what we're in now is this like i don't know i kept on thinking about weirdly enough i kept on thinking about the ip man movies Mm -hmm. that told the story of the guy who like taught bruce lee's you know how to fight or whatever and there's like these really famous i think trilogy or quadrilogy of movies at this point where ip man is like this like savior of chinese culture and history by fist you know by like fighting and the real dude was apparently a total asshole like a (laughs) drunk and had like I don't even know what the full extent of his of his you know skullduggery was, but he wasn't as shining a dude as these movies portray him, mm-hmm. right? And so it's like yeah, I know I know it's like book to film adaptation is very different than book to game adaptation, but I felt like this eighty days inhabited more of that like softening of the edges of blurring the edges of history mm-hmm. versus uh, portraying them as it was portrayed in the writing. So like for example, it's like more of an Ipman adaptation versus like a To Kill a Mockingbird adaptation. Like To Kill a Mockingbird, the film, is like almost letter for letter the bigotry and the triumph and the terror of the book by Harper Lee. So it's like, and that's neither, that's neither here, it's not like a qualitative uh, analysis. I just sort of felt that as I was Mm -hmm. playing it. It's like, oh, this is like, it's good that I can access these cultures in a more egalitarian sense. It's great because I, Tavit, now value the sense of democracy, the sense of freedom, the sense of representation that I want to see mm. of non-Western cultures. But it was also like kind of weird because I was like, well, so I'm never going to get to see the full extent of the bigotry, except in the moments where the game was, interestingly enough, kind of showing its Occidentalist tendencies. Mm-hmm. So Orientalism is the West looking East or to non-West and saying, oh, you savage, oh, you whatever. Mm-hmm. But Occidentalism is 
quite the opposite. It's the Eastern world looking at the stereotypes and the, the sort of, I don't know, the of the English-speaking world, the stereotypes and the sort of demonizations of the West, and that includes Western Europe, that includes actually uh, the Middle East as well. Mm -hmm. uh, it's basically anything that's non-Eastern. Mm -hmm. And so it was interesting because I felt like in the portrayal of Passport 2, especially in the portrayal of Fog, there's this like genteelness and like effect kind of disaffection that they're only seeing the world as it commutes them to their goal mm -hmm. and their fine gentlemen of travel yeah. and shit and yeah. like that is just as that, that occidentalism is almost just as damning as the orientalism of the original core text but when you explain you think that's actually a commentary on the pr perspective of the book though it like could be it when, could well like be like the way they're writing the game is that this is the perspective of the book and then you're bringing the camera or the viewer outside of the perspective and saying like this is now look at it it's kind of weird sure you know like they're actually they're so disaffected of this wide natural like interesting world sure and but they're kind of approaching it from this and cold disaffected uh, I, perspective. I don't think i don't think you're wrong at all i think the possibility of what you just said absolutely exists should the player have chosen to react to the narrative cues that they had a sense of agency in mm -hmm. like in that way if you i've tried to play through the game with extremes i've played the, i beat it a couple times just sure. playing as me like mm -hmm. as i would want to play it and then i tried my best to break the game in multiple ways i was like let me try to be as much of a bastard as i can or let me try to beat the race as fast as i possibly can sure let me try to save as many people as i can in another playthrough and every time I had a very different narrative reaction because, mm -hmm. again, what's interesting, I think, is in the sections where it's kind of choose your own adventure, in most cases, you're not deciding what Passport 2 does next. Mm -hmm. In most cases, you're deciding how Passport 2 reacts to what he sees. Absolutely. And then the fiction flows, which is just a cool choice. Yeah. But in that same way, like, I could see absolutely the point that you're making if the player was had the wherewithal enough to like be sensitive to those issues. But I could also see a playthrough where you don't meet Octavio in New Orleans and you don't give a shit about the revolution on the Trans-Siberian Express or you don't participate in any of the more democratizing actions of the experience and you might only just see Passport 2 or you might only care about or read critically about Passport 2 and how fast you can spirit, you know, fog around the world. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, well, then all you have is like a traveler fog who constantly needs to be waited on and had his hair and mustache fixed up because that makes him feel 100% heart mm -hmm. um, and then you want to keep your money top and you want to do all that stuff and these are just like some effete genteel dudes having to be like spirited around the world without yeah. all the sort of I mean, I, th I think that's certainly true. I don't know if that's necessarily a bad thing, though. I think no, it's I don't really think it's a bad thing either. Yeah. I think it's cool that yeah, you kind of you really do get out of the game what you want to put into it, which is I think kind of rare in games. Sure. In terms of a lot of games will guide you along, will hold your hand to show you the kind of point they're or the point they're trying to make. And eighty days, actually, you can play it straight. Very, like you said, very straightforward as the book, or a as race. or <laughs> as a race, or as purely a game mechanic-driven challenge. And some of the cool stress in that game is is the mechanics urging you on to circumnavigate the world very quickly right. and then a lot of interesting things happening on the sidelines that you want to check out and right. you're just like that looks interesting I kind of want to look into that maybe more and then you try it and then it fucks you up and you're like that's cool though it was still pretty it was still, it still, worth, was still it. worth it you yeah. know, it was still an interesting example I, I don't know I, I can't really imagine a player I mean I guess there are probably plenty but a player who, who would always shirk that opportunity to simply get around the world it seems like that's not the point of the game even while it I, I do agree while it's not the point of the game I think there's this interesting 
interesting moment where we have to come back to the fact that 80 days is being adapted into a game. Mm -hmm. And so even though that may not be every player's purpose, I think there will be a lot of normative players who approach this and they're like, the goal of this game is to make it around the world in 80 days. Mm -hmm. It's called 80 days, right? And like there there wasn't really even a very well-defined tutorial in the game. It's just forward no. thrust. Yeah. You just begin the game in London. The story starts unfolding. You actually don't... You're not explicitly taught to trade, to go to the bank. It simply happens as it happens, mm -hmm. right? And in that way, I think, by choosing to adapt 80 Days into a uh, game of interactive fiction, it does tend to funnel some of the people's expectations, some of the user's expectations, to beat it. Mm -hmm. And to beat it, the conditions are the conditions of the bet, right? Yeah. And that does not preclude getting swept away into a romance with Octavio or Octave or whatever, or inciting the revolution or captaining an airship. It does not preclude that. It's, no, it's a part no. of it. But it's also choice. This is agency, yeah. right? Yeah. The writer, Meg Jayanth, in an interview with nerdybutflirty.com, she wrote, in response to what is her favorite part of 80 Days, she says... It's really great to be able to write an alternate history that is full of women and marginalized people and have non-Western cultures invent wondrous technologies and have agency. I think that's probably my favorite part. People like me don't often get to be heroes. They don't often get to captain airships and lead automaton armies and incite rebellions in games and in historical or steampunk stories, even though there were plenty of us doing incredible things in history. So it's like, just as you said... It, it seems to be a central motivation for the creator, for at least the lead writer in a narrative-driven game that yeah. becomes one of the core yeah. principles of the game. And what's interesting is that that storytelling of that marginal of those marginalized people is still being told primarily through a language of capitalism. To me, uh, especially Fogg, Phileas Fogg, yeah. he is essentially Max Weber to me. Mm -hmm. And this is quoting Max Weber. Remember that time is money. You know, remember that credit is money. Remember that money is of the prolific generating nature. Money can beget money. Remember this saying, the good paymaster is lord of another man's purse. Passport too, right? Yeah. Like, the, it's so funny because it's like, you know, this UK Cambridge studio, incredible, Inkle does incredible work, creating what is essentially a post-colonial take, a very capitalist take mm -hmm. on this colonialist document but filtering it through their capitalist take to arrive at this democratizing, empowering, and, and, and egalitarian fan fiction of the yeah. colonial era. So it's it's just sure. interesting to me. No, it's no, not bad. It's no, wonderful. It's, it's, it's weird. Take, yeah. But it's not one-to-one -one adaptation not of, yeah. 80 day, of Around the World in 80 Days. Yeah. So it is what it is. You know? The really capitalist cool. take is very interesting. Yeah. Because yeah, you could actually frame it in, uh, as, in the understanding that it's not egalitarian. I mean, not everyone... Everyone in the world could even get around, no, or could get outside of their town. No, there are items in the marketplaces that are specifically more valuable to poor people and mm -hmm. to people who have less and less means than fog and and passport too. They're like yeah. the the salt crackers. It's like even in the description, it's like plain and moldy, not moldy, like plain and whatever without can be served without cheese, but will keep well. And then underneath is the sub bar, like will be of interest to. Uh, poor and like underclass passengers yeah. and stuff like there's that. There's definitely so, a class awareness. There's a class the game, awareness. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. In a in yeah. a colonial setting, which is again, it's just interesting. Yeah. All these choices are very. I mean, interesting. Kind of, I think. Yeah, it makes me a little take issue with that. With you saying that it's egalitarian and soccer on the edges, because it's, the world is still pretty violent. There's sure. wars. Sure. There actually is slavery. Yep. There's absolutely there slavery. Are and there's freed slaves. There's, there's colonialism. There's, yeah, there's colonialism. <laughs> it, it does exist in the world. That I think that the, the perspective of the game tries to find the, the beauty in the world, the kind of 
maybe an optimistic uh, take on certain aspects of it. But this, the game still can get very, very dark. Absolutely. I mean, you can take a slave ship to get to Africa. Yeah, If absolutely. you want. If you're playing, like, you know, that's one of those, like, moral conundrums where it's like, do I sacrifice my journey or do I get on the slave ship? And then yeah. I'm totally implicit in this slave trade. Yeah, and all of those choices are presented as flatly as white text on the black overlay that pops mm -hmm. up when you have a narrative choice to make, you know? Sure. And your choices are in that blue highlight text. It's all the same. Like all the there's no moral weighting of the choices beyond what you how you respond to them, which is interesting. Again, yeah, it's 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 pretty cool. I think like did you have any favorite like moments, any stories or subplots that you uncovered that were like among your favorites throughout the game? I think my last playthrough was pretty memorable because I got to uh, London on the 80th day. Oh, was, nice! Like, slid home! Right, totally home slide. <laughs> and it was actually very, it reminded me a lot of the book because the way the book ends is they uh, get back, but because they hadn't reset the, or they hadn't reset their clocks to go back 24 hours, they thought the they, deadline? Yeah, the deadline. Yeah. They thought that they had, they, did, they had basically had a, d a day more than they thought they did. <clears throat> and then ultimately they were like, oh, we got a day, we won. So they had originally had totally thought they lost. Sweet. And that was where I was because when you got, when you get in, you're basically, uh, before you get in, the game is telling you that you lost. It's yeah. saying like the password two and Phileas Foggard, oh man, we lost, this sucks. They're just talking about how Dejected they lost. Dejected dudes, yeah. Um, and then you get there and then it's like, you won. <laughs> and you're just like, <laughs> what? Okay, great. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, so that was a really cool, like, it was such a chaotic journey. Very, there were so many di disastrous moments that happened. A, a failed ship mutiny. Yep. Uh, totally, I got that too. Totally I totally failed out. to mutiny That's that ship as well. I thought I got this, and then it did not happen, and then ended up, I was sleeping in the streets for a little bit, because I was like... You were out of money. I was totally out of money. Nice. You are just like, there was like a few days where I was just like, I was waiting for the bank to come through. Oh, yeah, like, totally. It's, a, it's such a funny dichotomy of being stuck in a town, sleeping in the streets, waiting for, like, $5,000 Yeah, come in, exactly. Which is, like, probably the equivalent of, like, a million dollars in this world yeah. or whatever. Dipping your toe in how the other half live. Yeah, and then, like, this, they had to have, like, another homeless person come up to you and, like, seek warmth. And, like, you can either, like, accept, accept them or turn them away. But then it makes, like, Phileas Fogg more yeah. uncomfortable because he's, like, exactly. this English gentleman. Totally the class weirdness going on, like, down to the core right there. Mm -hmm. I ended up get, taking a ex-slave ship to Africa. There's like, because I guess there's two options to get. There's mm -hmm. the, the main slave route, and then there's actually a ship piloted by this ex-slave who's like looking for her husband. Yes, and I think I may have. That sounds super familiar. I yeah, that. yeah, and she's kind of like this awesome captain, and mm -hmm. like this like Brit there's also like a British force on the on board who are also kind of look. They're basically like a trying to take down slave ship, and then they're on the ship and they're kind of bossing around. And she's like doesn't have she doesn't, she doesn't want any of their shit, and she conveys you to to your your destination. But in the meantime, it's like her, the story that you're getting told is really awesome. Totally, and super sad because there's so many people on the ship who are just looking for their loved ones because yeah. they're free slave and they're trying to track them down because you're going to Tragics. I think Cape Town to like the there's like a town that's basically the um, where all the freed slaves try and go to because <laughs> they could find each other there that's awesome man yeah, yeah I think it's a cool journey <laughs> totally that sounds amazing I think one of the things that I mentioned it before the thing that I one of the things that I love the most about the fiction of the game is that it's not so strictly concerned only with adapting around the world in 80 days but around the the world of around the world mm -hmm. in 80 days like the, the time and, and eras uh, the time and the era Jules Verne's work, and then also, curiously enough, other works of fiction were parentheses into the experience. So, like, when I was on the Orient Express, and there was a murder on the Orient Express, and I was like, oh, I got the crystal, oh, Hercule Poirot, I yeah, get to yeah, do yeah. a little murder <laughs> mystery. And what I really loved, from a, from a game design perspective, were how many different types of popular visual novel or narrative-based game 
uh, tropes were squeezed into this one package. Mm. So in one path, in one trip around the world, I failed to solve a murder mystery, but I got pretty close this time. Yeah. Uh, I was a little bit closer. Always a little bit closer, <laughs> exactly. I failed to incite that revolution, but I think I know how to do it now, like mm -hmm. the mutiny on the ship. Yeah. I made it through Vladivostok or whatever it was, finally faked like a military transport where mm -hmm. I had been locked up for five days oh, on really? a couple mm -hmm. playthroughs. <laughs> and all of these different things, it was highlighting like, it was like, um, text adventure as a uh, as a detective novel like the Phoenix Wright series uh, text adventure as um, as like a there, there was even the boxing match on mm -hmm. the the route from uh, New Orleans up to Washington DC if you take a certain train yeah, you can get I, into a turn-based boxing fight that. and yeah. that's another type of visual novel gameplay but my it was favorite so intense still <laughs> oh so intense yeah um, and it was great to see yeah. that like a fist fight a revolution, a murder mystery, all these could be handled with just multiple choice answers. Mm -hmm. But my all-time favorite experience, one that I actually specifically take the trip to New Orleans for every time I can, is making out with Octave. Mm. I was so surprised the first time mm -hmm. it happened mm -hmm. that this, you know, that basically... The option shows up. The option like, shows up and I'm like, oh. oh my gosh, I can do this. Yeah, yeah. This man, this like freed slave who I'm hanging out with as um, Passport 2, that we can have a romantic connection. And so finally, to do the text adventure as a dating sim, which is yeah. obviously a very popular genre of game, especially in Japan, yeah. but also coming west, basically it's happening more and more. And I just thought it was great that Inkle could, and the writer Meg, could all decide to explore so many different genres of gameplay that are possible by using just text. Mm -hmm. It was just very impressive. So I think my single favorite thing to do is make out with Octave, Octave, because it's just so, it blew my mind the first yeah. time, and it's just something, yeah. and on one gameplay, on another journey around the world, I tried to just make out with as many people as I could, because <laughs> you can like make out with a woman in San Francisco, Octave in New Orleans, there's another romantic thing you can get into halfway through the Trans-Siberian Express, oh, really? but I haven't pulled it off yet. So I was just trying to do like the Lothario yeah. playthrough, yeah, yeah, the, like yeah. Casanova playthrough, um, but Again, that it's flexible enough to allow my inputs yeah. and still use that meta movement around the world. There's uh, also yeah, another really interesting one. I feel like it has a cool appreciation of children, too. There's a lot of, lot of like cool like ship board children yeah. that you interact with in like Passport 2 is just innately this like totally cheerful guy that loves kids totally. and like you in turn love kids. And then yeah. like there's one that was really sad actually. I think it was leaving maybe Iran. But you're like just traveling actually a pretty short journey to to an, to maybe to another like location I forget where you find this like stowaway princess on board this ship and I think I've heard of her but I haven't yeah. met her yet and you are just fast friends immediately That's and awesome. just kind of hanging out but then it comes you know it comes out that she's going she's trying she's running away from from a home. And at first you support that, but then you kind of... There's just so much thinking that goes on because you're just like, oh, but she's running away to some random place that's probably dangerous for a for a runaway princess. You know, yeah. think, Aladdin in the market. She can't just take <laughs> totally. that apple. Yeah. It's going to cut her hand off. It's racist, but... <laughs> but it's Disneyist, I think. Uh, Disneyist. Their own former racism. Mm -hmm. um, but you, yeah, you essentially help her out, and then it comes time for the ship to land, and she's and you're just like racked with indecision. And you, I basically had to, I decided to just tell the captain and turn the ship around because I was worried that you know she just would be, she wouldn't be able to survive in this new location. But then you get back, and she's just like so sad and like upset and like kind of heartbroken at you. And you and burn some like, days to get back. Oh yeah, but they give you a lot of money when you get back nice, so nice as, a, nice. as a reward. So you. Get that little the, the capitalist capital capitalist glint shows up in the left side of your brain but then also like you're just super <laughs> your um, morals are depleted you're depressed 
at having at the end of it i was like you know i actually feel like i gave in to like my patriarchal yeah this little princess like, nature i was like herself. she can't handle it. she probably could have handled it yeah but because i was thinking that i was thinking of it in a very like kind of sexist fatherly way like i was like she I need to send her back to her family, even if even if her situation is fucked up, and you know it's the game kind of leads you to believe that it's not a great situation for her. Otherwise, she wouldn't have run away. Totally. But I ended up doing that when trying to do the good thing. It's pretty rare in a game when I do something that I think is good, and then it ends up uh, and a game kind of it feels like it backfires, but in a subtle way, like it doesn't mm. like backfire awfully. It's not like Walking Dead where you try and like. You know, yeah, and achieve a good result, and and somebody dies. Yeah, it's more like yeah, it's more like this was an attempt to do something moral and worthwhile that ended up probably being short sighted. Yeah, and that's I think that's specifically why I like in the majority of cases your player agency is expressed by how passport feels, mm-hmm. not by what he does. Yeah, because then it is in a direct conversation with the player's it's sense internal of, monologue. Yeah, the player's sense of morality. Yeah. The player's inclination towards like patriarchal family structures or whatever, and in that sense, like like any good game must be tuned well enough so that the player is fighting the environment fairly, basically fighting themselves and growing their skills versus feeling as though they're fighting bad design. Mm-hmm. Like this game, I think pulls that off really, really well. Mm-hmm. It's not the most exciting game, like because it's limited by the fact that it's text appearing on screen. And the sort of the art's beautiful, like all of it's really beautiful, but it's not like it's not like a thrilling action. It's not Bloodborne. It's not like oh my god, pop out scare, like yeah. the soldiers, whatever. But the yeah, the more subtle interactive elements really work, I think, in this case because it's, it's asking you to reflect about you know how you feel about a situation versus what is your act, what is your act, what is your act. Yeah. The action is what are you buying and selling, and how are you transporting yourself? A and do the, I? Yeah, the reflection yeah. is another gameplay mechanic. Exactly. It's. It's a reflection mechanic. You're reflection essentially mechanic. going through the, this story and having enough interactivity in it that you then, it then forces you to consider your actions rather yeah. than just read a story and consider the character's actions, yeah. which is a cool aspect of interactive fiction. Absolutely. I, mean, I also really think that this is a fantastic game to share with people who might mm-hmm. not be mm-hmm. very much into video games um, yeah. because it, you know, it, it checks off enough boxes where I can firmly recommend it as a video game, but it's also broad enough and accessible enough that like it's good for someone who just wants to see an example of, of malleable fiction something that requires some baseline logic and strategy thinking strategic thinking but is also just about flow and movement mm-hmm. so in that way like I, I, my girlfriend for example does not enjoy video games it's like a big thing that we have we don't share that passion mm-hmm. but there are some types of games that she'll really get into and so I've on my iPad, I've like made a little folder with her name on it. So whenever she does feel so inclined or whenever I force her to play a game, she knows where to go, right? Yeah. And she really loves puzzle games. Uh, she shies away from action games. But this is something that I would definitely put in her hands and be like, hey, check this out. It's really interesting. And as a gamer gamer, I can still have a conversation with you about this game as more than just a video game. Yeah. So I, I really enjoyed it. I certainly recommend it. It was, it was, a, good, it was a good, weird fun time did you want to talk about the parallels with making your own game oh sure yeah so my company um my company uh king post we adapted 
Moby Dick by Herman Melville into a tabletop card game. And what was really interesting to me were the the seemingly the ways in which my team and our version of adaptation was all about adherence to the text and the rules that it set up versus this adaptation, which used the text and the pre-existing world as a springboard to then explore all of these different themes of democratization and egalitarianism and, and capital and post-colonialism and culture and all these different things that 80 Days talks about that may not have existed in the words written in the book, but in the world around the words written in the book. Whereas Moby Dick, or the card game, the game that we made, it was our process for a year and a half of developing that game was seemingly much more beholden to the core text. Now, the difference is, you just reread 80 Days, right? Mm -hmm. Around the World in 80 Days. Um, And I've read Moby Dick many, many times. And from my memory of reading Around the World in 80 Days, some of the key differences between those texts are setting and tone. Jules Verne's work seems like we were talking about, way more steeped in Orientalism and monoculture, exploring the world as a consumable transportation method to get a very aristocratic bet settled, versus Moby Dick, where the world was already, Melville's world was already uh, multicultural, multiracial, and quite egalitarian. There are many, many mentions about how the Pequod, the seminal ship where that carries all the sailors to their doom in Moby Dick. It's a multinational ship and that whalers come from every stripe. And certainly he holds a lot of American sailors up to a certain height because that's the country of origin and the country of legend of the Pequod. But also, you know, a, a Parsi Queequeg is like a man of legend. He's a, a yeah. sailor of legend. There's Tashtigo, a Native American and there's Dagu, like an African, like a tall, towering African, who are like the chief harpooners of the of the voyage. So there are no women. Yeah, there's no <laughs> women, and there's like mentions of women, but there's like one corporeal woman that appears, handing out like bread and stuff as the voyage is about to take mm-hmm. place. And Ahab mentions his wife once, but there's no women. And so in our game, we had those themes of egalitarianism, democracy, and and race relation all built in. It's something that we valued about the text. So all we had to do was carry that over and preserve it by showing the various named and unnamed sailors Mm -hmm. uh, that are in the book. Uh, by showing their nationality, by showing the the elements that Melville specifically decides to elucidate about them. Whereas in this one, it seems like the adaptive process was much more additive. Uh, It was much more about exploring the world around the book to then make the book a palatable engine for storytelling. Whereas with our game, we use the restrictions of the text to create a game mechanic that will absolutely adhere to the end point of the text every time. Mm -hmm. In 80 days, you can lose the bet. In the game 80 days, you can lose the bet. Mm -hmm. In our game, in Moby Dick, you die every time. Moby Dick kills everybody except for one sailor every time, Mm -hmm. just like the book. In every way that we could, we decided to go down the path of adaptation, which is more one-to-one, more beholden to the source versus additive or explorative. That, that's, that felt like the big difference, and se- sure. especially, especially when reading a lot of the interview uh, with the writer Meg, uh, Meg uh, Jayanth. She seems to be pretty open about how that's a big deal for her. Yeah. Um, so in, in that way, uh, really love this because, I mean, just like what my company is doing, it's adapting a great work of literature into gameplay and I I do firmly believe that games are an incredible portal through which we can view not only fiction but non-fiction but you know in the case of fiction or in the case of any subject games allow a human being's ego to enter 
the picture and become an agent in the storytelling. And I think that allows for such a depth and such a emotive connection to the work that is not necessarily, or it's just different. It's not that it's not capable. You just get a different sense of depth when you're simply reading a book versus yeah. playing. In a game, you're putting yourself in yeah. the world yeah. that the story is telling. You're still reading a story. You're still seeing what characters do and how they interact. But then, yeah, in the game, you get to imagine what you would do if you were in that situation. Yeah. And that's kind of, one of the, some of the power of, tr of translating a book into a game. Absolutely. Because you still have the good story. Otherwise, you wouldn't have translated it. But the, the good original kernel of the story and then... On top of that, it's almost like fan fiction, you know? It is, you're, yeah. you're like, I just love this world so much, I want to be in it now, and now I'm in it. And like, how do I interact with it? How, how, does, how does it react when I push it and when I poke at it? Like, these these elements that you've built in the story that in a book are brittle and, you know, rock, rock hard. They don't shift. I think you're absolutely right. And on top of that, there's something interesting that happens to the inner critic, the artistic and creative critic of the user or the player or the consumer depending on what state they're in. Mm -hmm. In passive media, when you're watching a film, when you're reading a book, when you're watching television, for me anyway, my inner critic is way louder mm -hmm. than when I'm playing a game. Mm -hmm. So I always put it in terms of uh, the difference between describing the action of a movie that I've watched versus a game that I've played. Let's say like uh, I'm watching like a like a James Bond movie, right? And I'm like, oh yeah, there's this part like James Bond like punches the guy in the face and then he... James Bond sleeps with the woman, James Bond this, James Bond that. But then if I'm playing a James Bond video game, I'm like, yo, I deck the dude in the face. <laughs> I jumped into a car. I drove that car to the whatever. I bedded that woman, that Bond girl. I, 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 I. And I think when the I enters the equation of the metafiction, it puts a lot of those critics inside your own mind to sleep. It just shudders them. Mm. And it creates a, a much more expansive place for the transmission of ideas. Mm. So when I'm adapting Moby Dick or our follow-up game is Beowulf into a board game, I feel like a person who's playing Moby Dick is going to have fewer of those moments where they're grading against the writing because their full brain is not being used. Their decision-making capacity is not being used beyond do I continue reading or not? How do I hold the book? Am I comfortable? In a game, certainly physical comfort is still important. But you're not like, you're like, I'm walking my character there. I'm deciding to send Ahab, Ishmael, and Tashtigo against this right whale. I'm deciding to go towards Berlin instead of going down to the Middle East on this playthrough in 80 days. Like, those decisions and the, the agency, the I that the player puts into the experience, I think has a remarkable effect on shutting up the critics. And when you shut up the critics, ideas flow way easier from the source to the user. You're more... You're more uh receptive yeah. to to the elements and the themes of the narrative exactly whereas if you're reading the book you yeah you don't feel part of the story so you don't necessarily you're, you already have kind of this second layer that's preventing you from well yeah you're kind of interacting with it you're you're constantly judging the voice of the writer mm -hmm. or the or the vision of the filmmaker or the acting on the screen you're constantly doing this and while some of that still happens when you're yeah. playing a game, absolutely. And we, we talk about it in terms of graphical fidelity, sound design. A lot of it's cutscenes. You know, like, that's why people hate cutscenes exactly. so much. Because exactly. It's not allowed. That's you watching a movie at that point. And right. then that's when the critic comes back and you're just like, what? 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 The, what? Where? Why do I care about this? Why do I care about that character? Why is my character sad when he dies? I was just like hitting a guy in the face with a bat. Like, yeah. I don't care about, you know, the, the, the subtle character interactions at this point if I. I'm not, I'm no longer embodying that character. Exactly. Or the incredible love and hate of quick time events. Yeah. Right? Because that's like the natural next step evolution or, or, or 
combination of what a video game action trope would be and the dry passive media of watching a cutscene, you have a quick time event where like when God of War first came out and like it blew our minds. We yeah. were like, what? Yeah, you yeah. can then he pulls the eyes out and well, I you're press still X. Doing it because, like, oh, you're pressing X. Yeah, <laughs> right. But it was just a cutscene that gates one way or another, depending yeah. on the timing of your like. Yeah. And in that way, it's like that. That is a great example of how the mediums are set apart. Mm-hmm. Like some people absolutely love the ferocity and the connection that they feel when Kratos rips an eyeball eyeball out of a griffin or rips mm-hmm. the head off of whatever mm-hmm. because they like jammed the triangle at the right yeah. moment. And some people are like. This is the end of culture, of like video game culture. Like, are you serious? Like, we're not we're not good enough as gamers to like pull the head off the griffin ourselves. Come on now. So it's just it's interesting. Yeah, it's all it touches all on many many topics, and I'm glad that we got to cover a few of them. Yeah, dude. Yeah. Um, that was that was really good. I think uh, we should also shout out Brian again, who did our yeah. awesome theme yeah. music Brian, in the beginning. Brian Miller, old school Brian on Twitter, and old he's, school Brian. He's uh. He's great. Yeah. And uh, thank you so much for listening. We'll be back at some point soon with our next episode. Yeah, hopefully very soon. Party on, Wayne. Party on, (laughs) Tavi.